Hi, it's Dr. Weitz. Thanks so much for joining me for this episode of the Private Medical Practice Academy. Today, I'm lucky enough to have Christine Meyer with me. She is a physician who has started an amazing practice. She has a total of five MDs, nine nurse practitioners, four PAs, and a staff of 54, and is the head and founder of Christine Meyer and Associates in Pennsylvania. Welcome, Christine. I have to tell you, this is an amazing size practice. Um, you know, very similar to my own, but, you know, so rare for an individual doc to actually be able to grow that. It, in today's day and age, everybody goes, oh, wow, that's amazing. But we're going to talk about how'd you get there? <laughs> so welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us a little bit about, you know, your background. How did I did you start out thinking I'm going to grow this empire or were you employed and said, gee, I want to start my own practice and it was just you, yourself and I? What, what did the beginning look like? Oh, my gosh. I never went into medicine thinking I would own uh, and operate a practice of any size. And actually, what started it for me, believe it or not, was paper folders. So I came out of residency and joined this practice of four older male doctors. They were all in their early 60s. I was in my, had just turned 30. Um, And I was in this practice and I was seeing a few patients just building myself up. And one day I went to pull a chart. It was back in the day of paper charts, right? I went to pull this chart off the shelf and like everything fell out of it. It was just like a one, like folded up piece of construction paper, everything fell out of it. So I went to them and said, Hey, let's get these manila folders where they have these little tabs and you could like, you know, punch holes and everything stays in little sections. Uh, And anybody, you know, who's young listening to this right now is like, what is she talking about? What is that? But you know what I'm talking about, right? And I'm laughing quietly, hysterically, because I have been there and can envision this exactly. Right. So this happens and I go to my partners very, so, and I said, Hey, let's get these folders. And they were like, Oh no, no, no. These are, you know, 75 cents more uh, a piece. That is just not going to happen. And I think at that moment I was like, what you, this is a mess. Like you could easily tighten up this one little piece of this practice by making the small investment. And they weren't willing to do that. And then over time, I realized that everything was like that, you know, an examining table that was beaten up, a piece of equipment that wasn't working, you know, they didn't want to invest in anything to better the practice. They just wanted to churn through the patients thinking it didn't matter. Um, And I wanted better than that. So, you know, in the back of my head, I was like, this is how I would do it if I could. And then all of a sudden I had the opportunity to. And so I did. (laughs) Well, it's really funny that you describe it that way because a lot of times, even when somebody runs their own practice, they are what I would describe as penny wise and pound foolish, right? Mm -hmm. That little things like the papers falling out of the chart, even though everybody is laughing at us because they think we're old now, right? If the papers are on the floor and totally disorganized, it takes time to put them back in the folder and reorganize them, which means that either you're not seeing the next patient because you're flipping through all of these random pages, and therefore your productivity is less, or you need staff whose only job it is in the world to reorganize the papers. So, you know, little things like that are, see, 75 cents may seem 
you know, like a, a big ad, if you're looking at thousands of patients, you go, oh, whoa, I don't want to invest that 75 cents. But in reality, it's costing you way more. Absolutely. Yep. Okay. So you, you decided to go out, start this practice by yourself. And was it you alone to begin with? It was. So my husband is a pediatrician and he had just splintered off from, you know, a megalomaniac that was running a practice and decided to go out on his own with two partners. So they found a space that they loved, but it was just a little too big for them. They had like two more extra examining rooms or something. And one day he came home and he was like, you know, I just wish we had like one more doctor that could use uh, these two examining rooms. And we both like instantly had this aha moment because, you know, like you guys, we met in medical school. We went through our entire, you know, medical school education journey together. And I think it was all always kind of a dream to maybe work together. So they had these two extra rooms and I plopped myself in there with literally like five patients, uh, one employee, and uh, and that's how it started. And it was it was just me for the first four and a half years before I hired anybody. So how how many years do you think it took you to get from where that four and a half years of being by yourself to, you know, bringing on. Did you bring on docs first? Did you bring on mid levels first? It, it seemed to have like it seemed to be like a snowball effect. So, and I learned this about business, right? Like one success can beget another success and another success if you nourish it, right? Um, It's like these orchids I have, like when they start blooming, they go crazy. But if I, if I ignore them, they, it feels like they will never bloom. So I started with an NP um, and she was great. And I think the expanded hours and her, you know, personality and attracted a lot of people to the practice, new patients. And then I hired a doctor. So it was NP doctor and they were like a few years apart. But then after hiring that second doctor is when things really started to take off. You know, we bought a brand new building and, you know, had tons more room and were able to bring on more people because we had more examining space. Um, And then it just seemed to, I would say every year almost, and the math kind of supports that every year we bring on one new clinician. So I've been in practice 18 years and have 18 clinicians. There's a slow start, but (laughs) ever since then, it's been, it's been much more consistent. See, I would actually argue with you that it's not so much that it's a slow start, but that if you look at a practice, you have a certain amount of overhead that you have to pay regardless, right? You have to pay your rent or your mortgage if you own a building, but if you own the building, you should be paying rent to the entity that owns the building. That's a whole nother conversation, right? But you have rent, you have uh, all of your base salary requirements because whether you have one doc or you have five docs, you need a front desk, you need MAs in the back. And so, you know, basically once you have enough revenue to exceed your base costs, then everything else is is extra. It's extra. And you then have money available to invest in bringing on that next practitioner. And if you're lucky enough, and this is where really being thoughtful in that hiring process is so important, 
if you bring on somebody who's a fit and people love them and they help you grow their grow your practice then and especially a mid level where you have extra revenue relative to their salary you have that much more money and that many more patients who need to be serviced so bringing on that doc is actually that much easier and and personally my favorite thing to do is grow if you're a solo practitioner bring on that mid level first because they basically help you grow your practice and then and they're at much less risk and they're much more available than hiring a doc i'm sure that you probably will agree to that absolutely and then when that doc finally arrives you already have a grown practice to hand them and then the mid level can go on to continuing to help you grow that practice while that doctor takes off on his or herself um so I think that that's the fact that it snowballed really doesn't surprise me. What I want people to hear is that you really were very effective in leveraging your growth. Um, And that's what it takes in order to grow to that size. So now that we've painted this super rosy picture of this, (laughs) let's talk about what we're really wanting to hint at. And that is, that growth is not a straight line. Um, and it is fraught with roadblocks and mistakes. So give us some examples of some of the, oh, I wish I hadn't have done that, or if only I had known mistakes you've made along the way. Yeah. So, you know, one of the biggest mistakes I made, I think, came from getting a little overconfident. So I, I told you that we we bought this, you know, 7,500 square foot building and built it out. And like you said, yeah, we created a real estate company that was going to own the building. We're paying rent to the building and all that. And that went beautifully. That building, like it seemed like a nice brand new space also really attracted patients. And my clinicians were happier to work in a nice open space with all new stuff. So that was going great. Um, And then about three years in, we were out of space. So we had seven examining rooms. They were always full all the time. And I was in a stage where I was still, you know, growing the practice in my mind, but we needed more room. So to bring on more doctors. So the first thing I did, and this is, this is where I think my first mistake happened is I interviewed a physician um, who was looking to come on and liked her very much and offered her a position and said, you know, we're going to buy a new building. So, you know, just get started. It's going to be a little tight for a while, but then we're going to have this brand new building. We're going to move you in there. We'll be able to expand your hours. So I went through the process of finding, buying, and outfitting the second building with the idea that this doctor that I just hired was going to be the first set of feet in this building. The first set of feet, she's going to get in there and then we're going to do the same thing, you know, bring on more people, more advanced practitioners and so on. Well, she was a dud. There's no other way to say it. It was it was a disaster from, you know, I don't know, 6 months in. She was slow, she was unhappy, she was a little neurotic, like it was just not a good fit, but I had a $1.3 million mortgage on my books and a brand new empty building that I had to do something with. Um, So, you know, the biggest mistake I made was make plans based on a human being and a personality that I didn't know. 
make a financial investment based on a person that I didn't know. That was mistake number one. What I should have done is really like let the wheels churn and be and live in a tight, uncomfortable space uh, before making that investment. That was mistake number one. And then, um, you know, I let it go on too long, you know, because now I, I, I felt like, well, I'm, I'm invested in this building. I, this could get better. So I just kept throwing like, you know, literally and figuratively bad money after good into this person, like coddling her, changing her schedule, getting her more help, like, but nothing was ever enough, but I was just investing more and more into her because I felt like I was stuck. Right. But had I just ended it and taken a hit for a while, but then brought in the right people sooner, I mean, mentally, I would have been much better. Financially, I would have been much better off. You know, my staff would have been better off. I mean, she sucked the life out of everybody in that practice. Um, so I would say that that was my second mistake is, you know, just continuing to bury yourself in your first mistake. <laughs> just you, Once you know, you just got to get out of it, you know? So I, I have been in both of those situations. Um, I think, you know, the the solution of being in the tight space is certainly one of the solutions. I would offer people another suggestion, and that is if you're opening another site, okay, if you are, whether it's a totally new building, whether it's a satellite, whatever you're thinking of doing, that the first person who should launch that site is actually you. Yes. Because you control yourself. You know all of the processes or you should know all of the processes. You know what your staff should be doing at the front desk. I mean, it's basically when you open another site, it is the equivalent of opening your practice yet again. Now, hopefully from the first time you've already got the process down, you already kind of know what needs to happen. But to think that you're going to put some new doc Right, or even an employed doc that you, you know, is not you and is not an owner in that space unsupervised, you're asking for a problem. So you really should be the person who goes, sets everything up. And, you know, basically when you hire a new doc, until you actually know what they are, you need to not assume that they're going to be wonderful. Because if I tell you the number of people over the years that I have interviewed had high high hopes for that have shown up and where we we've sat there and said this is not the person that we interviewed right okay? I, I mean we had a doc that every one of my partners loved when we interviewed the staff loved him thought oh he's going to be great his program director said oh he's phenomenal he showed up and he was the weirdest guy ever all right, including the fact that he, this was pre-COVID people, he wore gloves, okay, exam gloves to shake the hand when he walked in the room, he was wearing gloves. And people just thought this was really weird. It was particularly weird because he didn't change those gloves. Okay, so he wasn't actually preventing the patients from getting what was ever around. He was just preventing himself from getting it. Okay. So I think if you're going to open a satellite, then yes, um, you know, you, you really need to be the person to go there. I wholeheartedly agree with you that making plans based on a human, you know, I, this is a terrible thing to say, but people are replaceable. 
All right. You know, that doc, even, you know, maybe they weren't a dud. What happened if they got hit by a car, God forbid, and couldn't come to work, right? You have a place where you're thinking that somebody is coming. And then the, uh, but to your other point, you know, when you realize that you've made a mistake, that idea of pulling the bandaid off is, is, you know, really very painful, but very realistic. Okay, once you get that sinking feeling and you've made the good old college try, you know, the definition of insanity is to keep doing the same thing and expecting a different result. So if you've counseled that person, you've given them a bunch of tools, don't let this go on in perpetuity because it's it's not going to get better. And particularly when you hire a new doc, I don't know if you do this, I do this. Um I have a ramp up schedule. I have a, you know, because I have to pay them a salary, right? right? right. So I have a very good sense of how many patients do they need to see by what, how many months in, in order to be able to cover their salary. Yeah. Because who wants to run a business only to be a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand dollars underwater for the privilege of having this person work in your practice? Right. Right. So as soon as you see that like, there's no chance in hell they're ever going to get there. Cut bait. Yep. Exactly. You know, so I, 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 the only reason I wanted to really belabor that point is because I think both of your mistakes are, are mistakes I've made. And I think mistakes that most people who have this vision of how am I growing this are likely to make. Because you're so focused on how do I grow um, that you, you kind of go, well, I'll put up with this in the interim. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things you had told me, Christine, is that you're having a hard time finding docs. And, you know, I, I guess one of my questions to you is, do you ever feel that sometimes you settle and that that's part of the problem? Definitely. Definitely. I mean, I would love to have as many physician resumes to comb through as I do advanced practitioner resumes to comb through. That would be so luxurious for me. Um, but I don't, and I don't know how it is in other parts of the country, but definitely on the, in the Northeast where I am, Doctors coming out of med school are not going into primary care. So I have a primary care practice. I guess I should say that, right? everybody's going into a specialty and they're driven by uh, dollars, I think, largely. Uh, So these procedure-driven specialties are just much more lucrative. Or people think, I will say, and maybe for a conversation you and I should have offline, I have an extremely lucrative practice for myself as an owner, right? But coming out of residency, nobody really thinks about the entrepreneurship of potentially primary care. So they go to the specialty. So my my pool is so, so small. And I also know that patient tolerance for advanced practitioners, again, in primary care in my area is finite. So, you know, I can, I can teeter on this ratio of four or five advanced practitioners for every physician. But the minute the scales start to tip and the advanced practitioners become more heavily weighted as presence in the practice, patient satisfaction immediately starts to go down and it's palpable. People are complaining. I never get to see a doctor. When can I see a doctor? Um, So it's a very tight balance to keep with very little options right now. Exactly. So 
Well, and for everybody who's out there thinking primary care doesn't make money, um, and, and yes, we can have this conversation separately, and then we can come back and talk to the listeners again. But if you think about CCM, if you think about RPM, if you think about the ability to bill for a 99211, all right, there are so many ways to bring additional revenue into your practice without actually you or even a mid-level having to do the work that primary care is actually way more lucrative than people think, okay? If your vision of medicine is limited people to an E&M code, you are sorely mistaken, okay? 100%. It it is all of these other things. And and the, the sad part of that is all of those other things actually are not a way of milking the system. They are a way of actually providing better care for your patients, Okay, without you physically having to do the work, but you in the end, it's a win-win because you're actually taking better care of those patients. Absolutely. So one of the things that I think people are going to wonder is how talk to me about how you deal with communication between all of your docs, all of your mid-levels, do you guys meet? How do you, I mean, 18 folks is a lot of folks. Yeah. So this is another mistake I made. So for the first several years, you know, once I went over, I don't know, eight or nine clinicians, I sort of lost touch with them. You know, it used to be when there's two of you, you're working side by side, you're talking constantly, um, or three or four or five. And then they, there came this number where it just wasn't feasible. We're in different buildings, different schedules. Somebody's working nights, weekends, blah, blah, blah. So I lost touch for a while. And again, I noticed patient satisfaction started to go down. Things like standard of care wasn't being met across all things, or, you know, some people were giving antibiotics and others wouldn't. And then patients started to gravitate towards the person who's definitely giving them the antibiotic and all this stuff. So I quickly realized that we needed better communication, both from a education, medical standpoint, my advanced practitioners, and even my younger docs needed constant communication about what the newest guidelines were and standards were. Um, And as the practice owner, I felt it was my duty to provide that education. And then the other thing was just the administrative stuff. Like this is changing. Now we have to do this. Now we have to do that. But we never really talked about it in any cohesive way. So once I saw that start to happen, I just, and this happened gradually. It wasn't like one day I woke up and said, aha, this is how we're going to do it. But I, today, this is how we do it. And it works beautifully. So each department meets monthly on their own, um, billing, front desk, MAs, clinicians, once a month on our own at a conference table. Once a quarter, uh, the entire you know, 54 plus people meets via Zoom now because it's just much more convenient after hours. And we talk about all kinds of things, mostly how the practice is doing and how they're contributing to the practice. And then I meet individually with everybody. So I spend a lot of time in meetings. (laughs) So, you know, but I think getting everybody in a room around a table on a consistent basis, like not just like, oh, I think we need to have a meeting, which is what I used to do. But, you know, every third Wednesday of the month is a mandatory provider meeting, can't be missed if you're, unless you're on vacation, um, has been, you know, instrumental. And sometimes those meetings are utterly just gripe sessions. Like we all just sit there and bitch and moan about, you know, whatever is happening in the practice or in the world. COVID is a classic example. But sometimes, you know, very pointed conversations come 
out of those meetings, things that change our practice policy for the better. Um, so, you know, those structured meetings by department and then as a group have been critical for the communication in my practice. So how do you deal with what I would describe as the daily fires? Because they're, at least in my practice, maybe I was the only person who ever had this happen. There always seems to be somebody or some issue, which is the daily fire. Do you have those and how do you deal with them? Oh my God. Yes. So this is mistake number, what, four, five, six. I can't remember, but this is another mistake I made early on is I did everything myself. I was, you know, seeing patients. I was making practice decisions. I was the practice manager. I was the front desk supervisor. I was everything. Everything came to me and I didn't do any of it. Well, the only thing I really was good at is taking care of my patients. And then even that started to fall off because my brain was always working on what fire I was going to put out next that day. Somebody calling out literally one time, somebody brought a gun into the office, literally a new employee. I was like, what? You can't bring a gun into the office, but stuff like that. So the correction I made, which has changed my life, uh, was spending the money on an office manager. And it wasn't just a random person that I brought in off the street. This uh, Clary, and I'm going to shout her out a thousand times over, she started with me very early on in the practice as a medical assistant and grew along with the practice. And I just you know, learned that she was so smart, so organized, such a people person. So when I decided that I could afford to pay someone a decent amount of money to not bring in revenue, because you know, as a practice owner, you do that. You're like, I'll pay them, but what am I going to get? What's the return on my investment, right? So we bring on clinicians because they generate revenue. Um, but I made this investment in someone who wouldn't technically generate revenue, but she whipped that place into shape. So after Clary, we put in place a front desk supervisor, and then there was a billing supervisor and an MA supervisor. And you know, a lot of that is like a revolving door, but she is a constant. So when fires come up on the day-to-day, she's putting them out and she and I meet once a week and she only brings me into the fire when it's something she knows I need to know about or something that she can't handle. Um, So I would say lesson learned, you can't do everything yourself as a practice owner and and clinician trying to see patients. You really have to invest in the delegation, um, especially to the right people. I think two points. Number one, I want to say, to the right people, exclamation, exclamation, exclamation. Mm -hmm. Um, Because a lot of times people will say, I can't really afford that practice manager. And they try and hire somebody on the cheap. Mm -hmm. And or they hire an MA who they've had from the beginning. But it's really more of a loyalty hire than it is a um, substantive, what quality, qualification, substantive hire. Mm -hmm. So you know, you have to have a very clear understanding of what the tasks that the person needs to be able to do that you're delegating and can they actually manage that. But the other thing is is that the point that you made that you are meeting with Cherie once a week, okay, I'm sure if I push you, Cherie comes to you on a daily basis if there's really some issue that needs your attention, right? And the point here being when you're the practice owner and then you decide to hire this practice manager, it does not mean that you take your foot off of the pedal. It does not mean that you are no longer involved. It doesn't mean 
that you go back to just seeing patients and somebody does it for you. Okay. Think of yourself more like Bill Gates or Tim Cook. Okay. I promise you that Tim Cook does not have his pulse, his finger on the pulse of everything that is happening at Apple. Right. Okay. But he probably, for all of his millions of dollars in in, uh, income per year, does know exactly what is happening in every division because there is a head who ultimately reports to somebody who reports to him. Right. Okay. And so as the practice practice owner, the practice manager reports to you. It doesn't mean that you don't have to manage the practice manager and or that the practice manager makes all of those decisions, right? Did you at some point give Cherie a list of, you know, here are decisions you can make without me and here are things that I want to hear about or is this something that evolved? How did that happen? Oh, it definitely evolved. So it started out with her coming to me with everything. And in fact, we talk about this a lot. We talk about the evolution that our relationship went through, she and I, which had definitely some rocky parts. I was like, what am I doing? Why am I paying this money? I'm still involved in all the nitty gritty. And then there were times where I'm like, well, my life is so much better. Like I should just let some of this stuff go. And in the end, what we came to is as her confidence in her role has grown, the decisions she's able to make without my input has grown. And she's made some poor decisions, you know, case in point, just last week or a couple of weeks ago, we had, they were calling for some sort of weather out here. And, you know, they were like, oh, the roads are going to freeze up. It's going to get icy by three o'clock in the afternoon. The, the roads are going to be impassable. And I wasn't in the office and she made the call to send everybody home. and just have all the clinicians do telemedicine. And, you know, she only told me after the decision was made, right? And I'm at home and I'm looking out the window and it's a bright blue sky, sunshine. And, you know, yeah, four snowflakes fell. The roads were 100% fine. I was like, this is not a decision I would have made. I would have said, we're going to stick it out until we see what the weather actually does. But I will say to her credit, my staff, my employees, my clinicians, Everybody was so grateful for that decision because even though ultimately it would have been fine, they were all terrified. Everybody was walking around that day under the impression that they were going to get out to their cars and drive on these like ice ice skating rinks. And really, I blame the weather people, to be honest with you, because of all this, you know, Armageddon they were predicting. But it was a decision that I personally wouldn't have made. But maybe it was best that she was in that in that role to make that decision. Um, but yeah, we didn't have a list at first, but now we do, you know, now, you know, I don't need to know about every person that's calling out, but I need to know about the person that brings a gun into the office. You know what I mean? So as you know, as situations come up, they go on the list of yays or nays. Well, and, and I would argue that you may not need to know every person or you may not know every time somebody calls out, but if somebody calls out repeatedly and the practice manager is about to terminate that, if that practice manager has met with either that person or, or let's say it's the front office person who's calling out repeatedly, what should happen is the front office supervisor counsels in writing that front office person who's calling out repeatedly. 
when that front office supervisor meets with the practice manager, okay, if you have that many levels of people, they say, I've counseled Susie three times for calling out repeatedly. Then the front office supervisor and the practice manager meet with Susie and say, Susie, you've been counseled three times that you've called out. If you call out again, you will be terminated. Then at your weekly meeting, the practice manager says, by the way, I want to tell you that we may need to replace Susie at the front desk because we've counseled her three times and her next infraction, we're going to terminate her. That way you're aware because as the practice owner, you know, you're going to have to pay, you're going to have to deal with the unemployment claim. Yep. Well, absolutely. Right. But you don't need to know that Susie called out the first three times. So. That's exactly right. Yep. Yep. Right. And, and then this is balancing it, but I just before we uh, get going, I want to just tell you, you should not feel bad about the snow because I lived for 24 years and ran a practice where there were hurricanes every single year. And we would see them in the Gulf a week before and the patients would start calling. You know, the, the, the thing is still somewhere in the Caribbean. Right. Or, or maybe far next week over Cuba. All right. They're calling a week before. We open next Tuesday. We see there's a hurricane. Yes, we're going to be open. We will let you know within 24 hours if we're closing. And to your point, the staff would be calling and or coming up to us. Are we closing? When are we going to know if we're closing? I mean, it looks like it might be bad. And if, and, Probably, obviously, we closed for Katrina. We obviously closed for Gustav, where the power was out for over two weeks. But I can't even remember the number of name storms that were coming that never actually arrived, where had we closed, we would have been sitting at home with blue skies, right? So it happens to, it happens to everybody. And, you know, this is... In part, the reason that if you are living someplace where it's prone to these storms, you need to have business interruption insurance. Because if you close for several, like, you know, if you have Armageddon snowstorm and you're closed for three or four days and you have 18 providers, that's a huge loss of revenue. If you have business interruption insurance, you can make a claim. Okay. Um, And I know that because that's what happened with Katrina and, you know, we got a large check from our insurance company. But my point is that these are things that are going to happen and you need to not beat yourself up. Absolutely. I'm writing you know, down business interruption insurance because I've never heard of that. <laughs> I, I think the, the, the thing is when you delegate, you need to recognize that they may make a mistake just like you might make a mistake because we all make mistakes. and. I think the thing that we should probably end on is if you don't think that you ever make mistakes in your practice, you're fooling yourself. Um, And if you are thinking that everything is going along swimmingly and there are are no mistakes and nothing ever happens, it's because you're not looking for them. And I think, you know, I'm going to let you have the last word. One of the things that you had said to me earlier on was about humility and the need to be humble. So I think I'd like you to touch on that as we close. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's maybe where I've often made my biggest mistakes is when I was not humble, when I took for granted uh, my ability to grow the practice, my business savvy, my ability to judge people every time that I was confident or overly confident in those scenarios, my biggest mistakes were made. So now I find myself, you know, listening to criticism with a very different ear, whether it's from my patients or from my staff, from my, you know, closest um, confidants, you just have to take the criticism with humility because ultimately it, it has saved me many, many, many times when, when Clary looks at me and says, this is a bad idea and here's why. When I argue without listening, we make mistakes. The practice does not do well. And that's happened several times. Usually it's in the arena of hiring somebody that she doesn't think we should hire. Um, when I just breathe and let and allow an office manager to tell a doctor what should happen, ultimately things always work out better. So yeah, the humility has served me way, way, way more than my confidence in many situations. Yeah. And and I think, I think it's not about not being confident. I think you have to be confident, but I think you have to recognize that even when that actually the greatest sign of confidence is the willingness to admit that I don't know everything and that I actually have to have an open mind. So on that note, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to talk with you. Please be sure to sign up for my newsletter below. I'll be sending you tips on how to start a practice, grow a practice, and then add multiple services so that you can maximize your revenue.